0: de-escalate yourself and recognize, you know, where your internal thermometer is and sort of how you can cool down because there are so many triggers. There are so many triggers in the hospital, outside of the hospital. And if you allow yourself to boil every day, you'll totally
1: burn out. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performing in times of crisis and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Adara Landry. Dr. Landry is a board-certified emergency physician and an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Harvard Medical School. She spends most of her time as an advisor to medical students, as well as an assistant residency director and fellowship director. She's passionate about diversity and inclusion in medicine, and is hopeful that through mentorship and advising, she can change the face of medicine to better resemble that of the patients that we treat. We talk a lot in this episode about exploring our reaction to stressful, triggering events about how to walk away and re-engage productively into a difficult situation, and ultimately about viewing ourselves as works in progress that are capable of change and growth despite difficult circumstances. Before we start the actual conversation, just a reminder if you're not already, consider signing up for the Emergency Mind newsletter. It's called Knowledge Under Pressure and it delivers a really deep dose of insight into a lot of the concepts and mental models that we use and discuss in the Emergency Mind. It's free to sign up and you can join at emergencymind.com slash signup. Okay, let's get to it. I hope you enjoy. All right, Adara. I am so happy to, to get to sit down and talk with you like this from from coast to coast. Um, thank you for coming on the podcast and, and joining us here.
0: Happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Right on. Um, so let's start, as we've been doing lately, sort of back at the beginning, uh, you know, in, in an earlier version of yourself. What got you into emergency medicine? What got you thinking about emergencies? Um, what sort of stoked that fire at the very beginning?
0: At the very beginning, I I have to say the origins are in Berkeley, California. I was a college student and I was walking down the street on my way to a writing course that I had signed up for. And I saw a group of people surrounding this man on the street, like he was seizing. I don't think I knew at the time that that's what he was doing, but I think in retrospect, that's probably what was happening. And I went up to him and, or to all of them, and I just sort of said, you know, what's going on? I, I was so nervous. Um, and I could tell that, you know, there was just an emergency and no one knew really what to do. And to be quite honest, I didn't, but something just sort of clicked. And I started giving people some direction, um, told them to turn him to his side uh, when he had finished sort of seizing and call 911. And I had checked his like wrist and found that he had um, a, a tag that said diabetes on it. And mm. I remember just learning loosely that diabetes had something to do with sugar levels. And I didn't know if it was, you know, his sugar was too high or if it was too low. And I just remember that uncertainty and being in a situation where potentially I I could help him, but I didn't know in which way. And that made me feel very uncomfortable with not being able to help him. But one thing I was able to do was just sort of hold his hand. I know this sounds slightly sentimental but that really helped I think calm everyone down and calm him down and it turns out this is quite a coincidence he was actually um in that writing course we were all waiting he was waiting outside and um a couple days later maybe a day later or a couple of, i don't remember but he he actually recognized me um and like has it gave me a, a card with some flowers. I still actually have the card and um, said, you know, thank you so much for waiting for me um, and, um, until the ambulance got there. And it's like all these really sweet words. And that was actually what stuck out more to me than everything else was the fact that someone felt recognized and supported in a time of crisis. Um and, and I really liked that feeling it gave me that I was able to help him. I also liked the idea of learning how to be prepared in stressful situations and that that was a skill set I could acquire and I could actually make a career out of that. Um, I had at that time considered going to law school. So it was not necessarily an idea of mine to become a doctor, um, but I think that was very motivating to me. It was actually what I wrote about in my um, medical school admissions essay, was about the story and how much it had inspired me to pursue medicine as a career.
1: Wow, that is amazing. What what an incredible story. And and the fact that you were able to talk to this person afterwards, like what a cool thing. And yeah, it was quite co- it, was, it was quite a coincidence. I mean, there, there's so much to sort of unpack from that. The way you first described that as coming up and feeling very nervous, sort of knowing something was wrong, and and somehow you you were able to take that nervousness even at the beginning and and understand, okay, well, in some sense, the antidote for this uncertainty is action, and I'm going to create action. I'm going to roll them onto the side and tell people to call nine one one. how how did you have that? What was it? What was your did you have a background in anything r- resembling sort of first aid or or what is it that you think sort of sparked you to do that even in the, the really like, um, uh, I guess nascent is the right word, sort of mm-hmm. like emergency mindset that you were using?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I had never taken a CPR course or um, any sort of training in emergency medicine. Um, but my mother was a critical care nurse. And mm. so she, you know, I remember she watched she wanted to be a doctor, um, but she didn't have the means to um, pursue that career. And so she felt blessed, but also limited in the sense that she was a nurse, but she knew she had potential to do more with her career. Um, I remember her always studying. She was like a medical student when she was at nursing school. She went to nursing school late um, when I was in high school or so, but um, she was always studying. And so I think there must've been some passive learning
1: Mm-hmm.
0: um from that process where I just knew some level of instinct or potentially it was you know maybe a movie or a TV show, but I, I definitely had no formal training. but I knew I think most people know, you know nothing I thought of was was very clever. I don't think it was a matter of me being in, you know in, insightful or um having some advanced knowledge. I think it was that I was just able to retrieve basic information in a time of being stressed. Because I think calling 911 isn't really creative. It's just, it's a normal process that we do when we're frightened and when we feel like we are unable to care for ourselves or others around us. So I think it was just a matter of me being able to unclutter the chaos and say, what is the next practical step to help this person who appears to be having a medical emergency?
1: Oh that's that's such gold right there right like that idea of sort of removing the obstacles in your in your mind uncluttering yourself and allowing your thought process to move forward and I love the way that you said that about these weren't particularly creative things you were doing you were just doing the basics and you were doing them doing them really well um that's not something that is necessarily obvious to most people. And a lot of us when we start emergency medicine training, we sort of feel like we have to get this very uh, fantastically complicated response to a situation. Um, at the time, like if you look back in time, do you, do you think you were aware of that? Do you think you were aware of that idea of just do the basics? Or is that sort of what you're, how you're able to process that looking backward?
0: I think this is something that I'm observing retrospectively. I think at that time I was I was doing what I just thought was right. There was no strategy behind it. Um, and I also actually at the moment felt like I wasn't prepared at all. And I think that's what drove me was this processing in real time of I don't know what to do. This it seemed like a you know a life threatening emergency. And I, I, and you know, I can understand now when people come into the emergency room and they describe a situation of their relative that probably wasn't life-threatening, but you could Mm -hmm. hear, you could hear, you can hear the fear of the family member describing it and, and understand that they were in such a panic mode when their father passed out or when their mother complained of chest pain. And, and that was what I had at that time as well even though he was a stranger, I felt that level of fear. And that was actually one of my first in the field, out of hospital medical emergencies, and maybe one of my only, I I haven't really come across many of these. And so that could be why it stands out to me so vividly, or it could be that it was the first, but I I think for me, it was just such a strong emotion. And, And I would presume that I was trembling and nervous, and palms were sweaty, um, because I really felt like I was in charge of that moment. I didn't feel like the people who were there were also leading. I, I felt that sense of responsibility until you know we waited for a while um, until the ambulance arrived, and then you know they they sort of ran the show, and it was great actually seeing their level of control mm. juxtaposed to our level of panic, and we were young. Like I, I was, you know, I, I must've been a freshman or a sophomore in college. And so, you know, and the rest of us were about the same age. So we were, you know, very unexperienced, but these EMS, you know, EMTs, so they, they arrived and they were just like, oh yeah, he's hypoglycemic. Like they just knew, it was so routine for them, that they were able to sort of push aside probably a lot of that fear because they had gone through it, they had trained themselves. But you could see how much different it was in the setting of someone not having any experience and a group of people arriving who who could just say, now this is an algorithm that we can follow.
1: Mm. Yeah, the, the cavalry shows up both in terms of their skill set, but also the way that they apply that really directly to this person. And it's such a such a vivid example like that. You Mm -hmm. know, I, I think most of us have some version of that story, whether it's before medical school or during medical school, where you get into this moment, you see this really sick patient, and you, you just sort of try anything you can And then you watch somebody else come in, and it just seems like they're sort of like floating as they do it so effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's such an amazing, amazing exposure to that. And I think being exposed to somebody who's able to think that way early is really, really important. Um, Did you ever talk to uh, your your mom about that? Was that part of sort of your discussion in, in life, like how one thinks in these situations?
0: My mom knows about this case because she helped me craft my personal statement. My mom's an amazing writer. um, And she helped me craft my personal statement. So she knows about the objective aspects of the case. Um, She might know about my response to it, because a little bit of it was included in the personal statement. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we have, look, I don't have these types of conversations with my mom per se. Um, But I think she knows it really impacted me because I used to always say I wanted to be a lawyer. And um, it was pretty close to after this event that I started considering becoming pre-med. So I think she could recognize the weight of it because it really, it it, it truly, truly affected me Um, and changed the trajectory of my undergraduate experience.
1: So let's fast forward. A little bit from that. So now you're, you've made this big decision. You're going to change what you're doing. You're in medical school. What was that like? I mean, from the beginning, were you like dead set on emergency medicine or was there a whole breadth of things and you sort of found your way into this, into this life?
0: It was, um, an unusual course. I, um, was pretty, um, lost in medical school in comparison to some of my classmates. Um, I felt not necessarily unsupported. I think there were resources there. I just didn't know what resources were available to me. And because of that, I didn't know how I could push myself and what opportunities I should go after. In many ways, you we usually strive for what we know is possible. And for me, it's, all, it's like if I were to ask my daughter, she's three, what do you want to be when you grow up? She's going to say a doctor because that's really the only career she knows at this point, which is what I am. She would never say architect or an accountant because she doesn't know about those things. And so you can imagine as a medical student not knowing what are the opportunities that are available to me. I would just sort of only do the things that were mandatory and it really wasn't until much later in medical school that I did my emergency medicine rotation which was required that I met a variety of people who were interested in me and showed me how they could use their MD in ways that were quite unusual as emergency medicine doctors with patient advocacy writing policies, wilderness medicine, hyperbarics, I I was amazed at that. And I thought, oh my God, there's so many opportunities. I felt bad that I hadn't known about it. Um, I felt unprepared when I applied that I hadn't had any mentorship and that I had a slim chance of really matching. It wasn't until I did a sub-I in New York City, which I had only heard about because. I went to lunch with a a close friend of mine, and she happened to invite another student who was going into emergency medicine, and he told me about this rotation. Much of life, I feel, is about the opportunities that are told to us us on these like random one-off meetings. And so because of that, I went to this rotation in New York City and met someone who was my first mentor ever and really, really showed me how much I could push myself and how little I had.
1: Okay. So for folks listening that aren't in the emergency world, a sub-I is a rotation, uh, sort of an audition rotation that you do towards the end of medical school, um, either at your home institution or an away institution. And it lets you sort of function as a extremely junior doctor, um, but but a higher level than you have previously been functioning in medical school. And it sort of puts you through the paces and allows you to have your own ability to usually to handle some of your own patients, obviously with some guidance. Um, but it's one of the first times that you're really stretched to think for yourself. Uh, so what was that like? What was that like doing that there?
0: New York City is a high pressure environment at all times. <laughs> There's nothing calm about that place. I love it. I lived there for four years, I loved it. Um, you know, that's a gr- it's a great place to train and really recognize how to handle stress because it's just everywhere. And um, how to deescalate yourself mm. and recognize you know, where your internal thermometer is and sort of how you can cool down because there are so many triggers. There are so many triggers in the hospital, outside of the hospital. And if you allow yourself to boil every day, you'll totally burn out. So it was a really great place. I think that was where I learned how to shift my perception of stress and how I learned to model my attendings who just always seemed calm in front of very stressful situations. And... A lot of that had to deal with. um, Many of them were there or had had been practicing during Mm 9/11, and um, I think, and also the cocaine epidemic. Um, And I think that really allowed them to see just how bad emergency medicine can get, and put everything into perspective as far as if someone, if it's a single individual is dying, well, that's not as stressful, it's still important, of course, as 15 arriving at once dying. And so I think they had such incredible experiences under their belt that they were able to teach us sort of the entire spectrum of what emergency medicine can look like.
1: Wow, let's press on that for a second. So there's this idea that if you have an incredible... Uh, Reserve an incredible deep well of reserves. You've been through things that are so terrible before Then you can go through things that are only slightly terrible and you can do it a lot better and In some sense that is the defining statement of emergency medicine residency right of emergency medicine dedicated training You're gonna be gradually exposed to more and more levels of terrible stuff until you build up enough of a well that you can understand how to process and handle less terrible stuff uh, that's not the official position on that, but that's sort of like a rough shot way of describing what emergency medicine residency is. Um, but it's interesting what you said about sort of how you were starting to learn that even from the beginning about how to how your relationship with stress changes over time, how you model those behaviors. What what was that like? What was that teaching like? I mean, were there times when when your mentors were saying, look explicitly? this is how you're going to behave and this is how you could behave in this circumstance. Or was it more of sort of um, osmosis and, and watching them do a thing?
0: It was a little bit of both. I I remember, I I mean, I wasn't a a hothead in residency, but there were Uh a few encounters where I, I let stress get the best of me. And I remember one attending um, sort of, Pulling me aside after an, an, an interaction went very poorly, and said, "When you're recognizing yourself getting so upset at someone or something, feel free. You are you are at liberty to walk away.
1: Hmm.
0: You do not have to engage." <laughs> and that was really helpful. I think that they put it into the perspective of what reputation do you want for yourself because you are in charge of that to a certain degree. And if you allow stress to get the best of you. I mean, like I said, I wasn't that much of a hothead. I really wasn't. But a few times I let a stressful situation escalate. I think we all are at risk of that. But a few, you know, a few times I, I let things sort of get the best of me, and and compared to compared to what my usual personality was, and so it was really helpful to get feedback on, on recognizing where you are, where your emotional status is, um, and where you want it to go, and sometimes you just need a cool off period, and um, that was very helpful. I mean. New York City, you know, people yell a lot and people speak. (laughs) I don't want to stereotype the entire city. So not everyone does, but it does happen. there. I mean, it happens everywhere, but I thought I I felt it a lot when I was in residency. And um, so a part of it was just a part of the culture of practicing in a, a major area. So it was a great training and, you know, experience. Don't get me wrong. I loved it. I wouldn't have changed it, changed anything about it. But there's a lot of stress there and you have to, you know, you have to learn how to be resilient to to a certain degree. Otherwise it'll, it'll just overwhelm you. So I think I learned from my attendings in um, different ways. The professional way was one small thing. Like I said, it wasn't a big part of my experience, but it was something that was clear from the, from the clinical standpoint. um, A lot of it came in feedback. Like they would, they would, after, you know, a, a a cardiac arrest or a really, really critical case, they were excellent at debriefing mm. and taking us aside and and the opening question almost universally was, how do you think that went? Which was always a nice pause, I think, for both of us. A pause for them in the sense that they could hear what I I have to say and gather their thoughts. Um, a pause for me because I think instead of saying to me, don't you think we should have gotten this patient blood quick, quickly? I, I can actually, instead of start thinking about the, the, the small changes that could have occurred, I could think about the broader picture of like, how well did that go? And I'm thinking more broadly, well, poorly, um, there were some areas of confusion, But otherwise, it ran smoothly. I'm thinking more in those sorts of larger frameworks in the beginning. And that's nice because it allows me to sort of collect my thoughts going forward.
1: So understanding the idea of like allowing you to approach your own analysis of your case without any sort of preconceived directions to push you into.
0: I think so. I think if they had given me feedback first, then that is what I would have assumed it it was like I, I would have. Assumed, if they had, they had told me it, it ran smoothly, and I thought it didn't, then it it might not have given me a chance to express my thoughts and to to navigate those and to um, you know, metabolize it and and say, okay, you know, you're right. I am answering that. Not that's great. I, I mean, I think if I I think if 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 they had just started the conversation, it would have been more teaching rather than, than listening. And I think their role as my supervisor is really to first listen, to first understand my perspective, and then t- to teach me areas that could be improved or just to even teach me all the things that need to just be reinforced. They were fine, but you can reinforce these things. So I, I think they took the right the right move, which was opening up the conversation to Discourse.
1: I want to go back for a second to to something you said that really, really struck me. This idea that you are at liberty to walk away. And what what an amazing way to put that. And what an incredibly powerful and really timely thing for us all to be sort of learning and hearing right now. You know, um, the idea that that there is a lot of really hard stuff that we interface with in the ER and obviously in the broader world as well. And some of that is truly terrible and truly triggering and unfair and unjust and horrific. And that somehow still, we have the ability and the responsibility to choose how we meet that space. Um, and that's not always easy or possible. But it's it's something that we can all work on. I mean, I guess I'd ask, what did that feel like to you to hear that that way?
0: I mean, it felt necessary, Um, like it was, like there were, there was probably no other advice that would have matched up to that Um, because, you know, you learn about all these, you hear about all these incidences of, you know, uh, professionalism gone gone wrong or um, these encounters that just make you feel terrible. Um, and maybe you have experienced them personally and a lot of times that the solution could have just been time and giving yourself time and space and not interacting with someone when you are not neutral. I think it's so great to resolve a situation when both parties are neutral and, um, have come to a place of, um, of reflection and said, "Yes, you know this did happen, but also this," and it, it sort of is around um, a, a calming position so that when you are when you are um, debriefing or meeting later, it's not about trying to convince someone of your side because you don't have a side. You're in the middle. You're mm-hmm. just trying to exchange information, and so. I mean, did I take all of that from just the phrase, you are at liberty to walk away? No, not right at at that moment. But I think over time, I have built upon that concept of you are at liberty to, to walk away when it comes to many personal interactions that are stressful. And there are so many in the emergency room. We're not even talking about just patient care. But with everyone else and everything else, it can get pretty stressful, because it, we're all we're all under that same pressure cooker, and um, because of that, we all have our own our own agenda and our own part of our own part in the in the process of getting a patient from entering the emergency room to leaving the emergency room.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are we are humans. Our patients are humans. Everything in the system is humans, and so we all carry all of the stuff we're going through our lives with. And then everybody mixes together in this giant pressure cooker. And you know, if there's one thing that's pretty true across all emergencies, pressure never makes anything easier, right? It's not like those problems, those sort of issues that we're that we're dealing with get easier when you add to the fact, add to them the fact that somebody might be dying or that this thing has to happen right immediately. Um, And so what does that look like for you? I mean, you talked about earlier, like you use the metaphor of like your internal thermometer or so, you know, you find yourself in the situation and you realize, hey, maybe I need to, I'm at liberty to walk away. I don't have to do this right here, right now. What does that look like for you? Do you, you know, do you meditate? Do you, is there a thing you say to yourself? What does that look like for you?
0: So there are certain types of stress I welcome and then there are certain types of stress I try to avoid. I actually welcome the stress that is related to patient care because that's why I chose emergency medicine because I love these critical decisions that have to be made in order to save a life. That is what I I run to that. The type of stress that I actually want to avoid is the stress that's more interpersonal, unrelated to patient care. So that type of stress, I don't think I encounter it too much, but generally speaking, what I do is ask for time. And um, that could be a simple comment of, we should talk about this tomorrow. There's not really much more that I I feel like I need to to do in the moment other than make sure I'm creating space and time.
1: So it's almost like, What I'm hearing is almost like that you've become a, man, I don't know if connoisseur is the right word, but a connoisseur (laughs) of stress, right? No, no way. No, that that you take what feels like what might to an untrained person feel like stress, period, and you're able to disentangle that into a bunch of different concepts. And so there's like the stress that comes from the friction of your job that you enjoy. And then there's the stress that comes from things that maybe don't have to be there. And then there's like some other really bad stress. So there's all these different flavors to it almost. And the way that you metabolize, and so you've developed both a sense of being able to disentangle the stress, and then you've developed different ways to metabolize each of the pieces of them. Um, And then at the end of that, if you're really left over with something that's like, like real bad that you really don't want a piece of, then you're able to have these other sort of systems that come into play for those moments. Because mm-hmm. um, that's that's like a very fascinating architecture to explore that way. Um, because I think for for most of us, when we're just starting to train, or when we're early, or when we're even just not really conscious about this going through our daily lives, stress is like a thing. It's like just like this mile, you know, this pile of stress that everything sort of feeds into and everything comes out of. Like maybe there's like one number for stress or one level for stress, but there's not this idea of what you're describing about like the different. I don't know. I'm I'm using flavor. I don't know if that's the right word, but different different flavors of stress. Well, I think what, you know, I think what happens with
0: at least a lot of junior um, physicians is that they actually run towards both types of stress that I mentioned earlier, the patient related one, as well as the professional and interpersonal type of stress. Meaning I have seen people engage in very stressful situations when they're heated Mm-hmm. and that never ever turns out well. And so my usual advice after them, after, you know, that occurs and and people come to me often because of my position as one of the residency directors is, you know, next time feel free to just walk away or defer, delay because you you are at liberty to do so and that is always I think reassuring for people to know that next time they just will try not to engage mm-hmm. because I think residents, it's tricky too because I think there's a part of emergency medicine that you want to appear tough in all aspects of it and emergency medicine is all about human interaction that's that's what it is I mean human interaction via ordering labs and all these things, but like, it's just human interaction. And so I think um, I think we want to be tough in emergency medicine, which could translate to, we need to be tough in being great at human interaction, whether it goes well or bad, whatever. I mean, I think most of us enjoy being humanistic, but I think also there is this culture of being a tough A tough person, and I I feel that. I feel that if you know, if I'm on the phone with someone, and you know, they're they're saying something like, "I don't want to. I'm not coming in. I'm, I'm not taking care of that patient." And I hang up the phone, and I look at my resident. They're like, "You didn't stand up for yourself." You know, like I I I feel that pressure sometimes. But I don't think that's a healthy way of thinking about interaction in stressful situations. I, I don't know if this is, by the way, what what you had intended on talking about, because I think, you know, it's, it's, feel free to steer me back on.
1: No, this is great. This is great. And I think this is really applicable, obviously, not just to emergency medicine, right? Because you can replace emergency doctor in that sentence with anything, Right. Like you have some image of how you want to be as a partner in a relationship or you have some image of how you want to be as in, you know, a person within a particular company or on a particular team and understanding how to disentangle what you're coming up against into these two these two buckets, these two components of like, you know, stuff that is really important that has to get done, that is crucial to the mission of whatever it is I'm doing and then stuff that like is Friction that happens that that maybe I don't necessarily have to engage with in the same way and, and sort of learning how to parse those things out and then and then react to them constructively. I mean, man, what an incredible skill set that is um, Something I'm a hundred percent still working on in my own life, right? Trying to trying to sort through those kind of ideas mm-hmm. um, But it, it makes me think about about this quote from uh, Pema Chodron, a a Buddhist monk whose uh, work I enjoy enormously. And, And Pema Chodron said, you know, sometimes all you can do is that you're sitting there and there's a fire and you've got a can of gasoline in your hand. And sometimes you can't put out the fire, but sometimes all you can do is just not pour that gasoline on the fire. (laughs) That is exactly right. (laughs) I love that one. Absolutely. And like that, and that's victory. That's victory in that moment because you don't have to get everything perfectly right, but you do have to understand when you're, I guess when you're responding to the wrong kind of stress or maybe when you're responding to, uh, maybe when you're mixing up what type of stress you're responding to. Does that sound like a fair way to put that?
0: Yeah, um, or or you're feeding the wrong bear.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah. You're feeding the wrong bear. Because in a way, you're you're almost you're you're describing what is essentially our our ego, our sense of self, and how that that interfaces with what we do, and especially how that sense of self is present and um in invested in who we are when we perform under pressure, um. Because, you know, it's possible that I certainly felt this way, you know, more at the beginning of, of my career, but that that who we are under pressure really, really is representative of who we are as a human being. And so w- when you come across that person on the ground and they're seizing and they're hypoglycemic and you don't really know what to do, like like that's so related to your sense of identity. And I think that's a, a challenging thing for a lot of folks to sort of dive into which is how do you um, how do you give yourself the space to explore and sort of upgrade your own mm-hmm.
0: relationships
1: with that really potentially very serious type of stress?
0: I think learning from others is such an amazing skill, and you know there are formal mentors, and then there's also this idea of just informal mentorship and observing passively from others. Dr. Lewis Goldfrank, who was the chair of mm-hmm. the um, Department of Emergency Medicine at Bellevue. When I was a resident there, I, I remember I was a um, maybe a second year in residency, and in front of everyone at conference, I don't even remember the context of the question. But he asked me, "What does a leader look like in front of everyone?" It was such an intense question. Those those were the types of questions he asked, you know. And I did not have a good answer for him at the time because I I don't think I knew, you know, exactly what that what it looked like. But over time, I I think I have realized that um, a a good leader is someone who responds in a way that as you watch it unfold, you can say to yourself, I would hope to respond the exact same way if I were in that situation. Mm -hmm. And I remember always watching Dr. Goldfrank get called names or deal with patients who were critically ill and he never fluttered and it was always clear to me that that is how I would want to respond and that is how I would want to be perceived by others is just being able to be still around all of the movement and he was able to do that in a way that was really um, inspiring and so I think finding, finding you know, your own North Star and it doesn't have to be, you um, in a formal way, but finding someone who you say, wow, this person really knows how to respond well in stressful situations. I would hope to be like that if I were ever in that position.
1: And sort of implicit in that is, is the idea that however you are right now is not permanent, that you can change and and upgrade your ability to perform in these situations. Um And also that there's so much to learn from everybody else involved with this, right? That everybody has their own versions of this and their own skill sets in this and that y- you sort of have to, uh, I don't know, I-, I consider, you know, this like a re- a real joy personally is to be a-, a lifelong student of performing under pressure.
0: I would agree. And I would, yeah. I'm oh, sorry.
1: No, no, that's it. That was the end. I'm a lifelong student of performing under pressure. That's it. <laughs>
0: I was just going to say, you can imagine that multiple people have keys to the door that will unlock the better you and, Mm. you know, allowing people access to teach you is incredibly helpful for your own personal development and recognizing that you don't have to learn from just one person, but there are multiple people who can shape you.
1: How do you recommend doing that? Like, like somebody listening to this, who's maybe earlier in their career or they are, you know, just starting to come to 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 terms with this, or maybe they're not in a formal residency program where there's so much opportunity for observation and mentorship. What um how do you suggest they take that idea and actually implement that?
0: I think you have to start with humility and recognizing that as at this current time, you are probably still not your best possible self. And there are going to be people who are going to shape you in unexpected ways, and so being open to that and recognizing the fact that you might not anticipate who those people are um, or predict it will be the first the first step is if if you if you only look for experts to coach you then I think you will fall short. I, I have had mentors of all levels. And some of my best mentors are actually near peer, meaning they're at the same level of training that I'm in because they are able to sort of walk me through their current steps Mm -hmm. and they are closer to where I am than anyone else. So you don't have to be in a high profile institution of any sort to find support. I think you can look to others nearby Who are in the same situation as you are in and say, let's figure this out together, let's work together, teach me your ways, I'll teach you my ways. But I don't think you have to be in a big academic center to get support. I I think that you can find help if you open your eyes to it and um, your heart and time and all those sorts of things.
1: Yeah. And just the idea that you're going to get curious and talk to people around you and and recognize that you have growth and the potential for growth and to believe that you have the ability to change in how you're you're behaving and how you're performing. I mean, those are really, really powerful, very empowering sort of core beliefs about the way that reality works. Um, And I love that idea that that you're not yet your best self. And that that should be the way that you describe yourself. Like, how are you? Well, I'm good. I'm growing. I'm not my best self yet, but I'm really interested in <laughs> like figuring out what's coming next. Right. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try to answer that question like that moving <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, so what what are you personally working on these days? I mean, as you think about your own craft as an emergency doctor and, and your ability to deliver, you know, to deliver medical care under pressure, what are what are you working on?
0: I think I wanna start being a better advocate um, for others. Um, my patients and, and my residents, my nurses, my techs. I, I think the first few years of my career, I felt like I was still you know, needing my own oxygen mask. But um, I think now I can maybe take it off and give it to others. <laughs> like I feel like I've sort of landed in a place where I feel secure in my job, I feel secure in who I am, my identity, um, and I feel like I, I need to be a better advocate for others who might still be struggling along that same process. Um, and try my hardest to look back in and, and think about what I would have wanted or needed uh, when I recognize that someone else is struggling. I think I would like to work on speaking up for people in a way that, again, would represent sort of what Dr. Goldfrank said, which is, what does a leader look like? Mm-hmm. And I would want to be able to be that person for someone else.
1: That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. As we sort of come to the, the end of our time on at least this episode here, what, um, what challenge do you have for people? What do you want people to walk away from this and go try differently this week or this month?
0: Well, times are really stressful right now, um, and I can imagine that there are many ways that someone could be tempted to feed the wrong bear. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know if you're on. Um, there's a social media group of um, emergency medicine physicians. And I've been watching um, it stir pretty violently, just via text, you know, and the exchange there. Um, and, and I think people need to uh, recognize if they are contributing to a conversation or interaction, positively or negatively. And if you recognize that I have nothing positive to give, then I'm I'm also, therefore, at liberty to walk away from this and to just do something else and to find something that I can contribute to positively because that will make the world better. And um, that will, I think, help everyone's stress level if we can all say, I am not here to help. I think what I was going to do would actually hurt Therefore, I will not do that. <laughs> it's not its not complicated, actually. It's just as simple as giving someone sugar when they need sugar. It's nothing sophisticated. But I think it's still hard to do.
1: Absolutely, absolutely inspiring and amazing and, and so well put. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk with us. Absolutely a joy to have you.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for inviting me.
1: Okay, folks, that brings us to the end of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found something useful that you can use next time you find yourself in an emergency or a crisis. Again, if you want to dig deeper into a lot of the concepts that we covered here, sign up for the Emergency Mind newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure. It is free and it is awesome. You can join by going to www.emergencymind.com slash sign up. Also, as a reminder, our mission here at The Emergency Mind is to dig into lessons around applying knowledge under pressure, not to provide medical advice. Our opinions, as expressed on this podcast or elsewhere, are our own and not necessarily those of our employers or the hospitals at which we work. So keep up the good work, keep training, and good luck out there.